This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with the message that Jesus is alive today. Now, today's lesson is titled, Confidence in Prayer, and it comes from 1 John 5, 14 through 17. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talk Inc. could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song is ever played, there's utility bills and tower rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with the tax-deductible gifts, so won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648, and there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone. Or mail us your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Now, your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's Radio Bible Class with no spaces between radiobibleclass.podbean.com or catch us wherever you listen to your podcast. We're there too, whether that's iTunes or Google or Spotify or Amazon. We're there. Just search for WMER Radio Bible Class with no spaces between Radio Bible Class. Well, today we're one step closer to wrapping up 1 John. We're going to look at 1 John 5, verses 14 through 17. And then next week, we'll take and look at those final verses, and we'll wrap up 1 John. But this time that we've been studying 1 John, this letter has intended to instill confidence in the believers, to instill boldness in the believers of Jesus, that they know that they are in a relationship with God. They know that Jesus was and is God. And when we believe that, and submit to his authority by walking in the light and joyfully keeping his commandments, we know that we have eternal life. And that's what we've studied as we've gone through this book. And so today, John gives us another area that we can walk in boldness and we can have confidence, and that is in the area of prayer. We can have confidence in our prayers. Ask most Christians, they'll tell you that prayer is a simple thing. And even though it seems simple, We need to understand what the Bible teaches us about prayer. Children tend to have very successful prayers. And why is that? It's because they use it effectively and they have an innocence and a faith that they pray with. So we're going to see that John gives us certain basics. He gives us general principles about prayer. And then he follows up with specific illustration of how we can pray. So if you would, turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, we're going to read verse 14 and 15 first. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. God, the creator of the universe, hears us. Think about that for a second. I don't know if you mark up your Bible, but if you do, mark up verse 14. John says right here in this verse that we have confidence in him that he hears us. And he's been teaching us all through 1 John about confidence. 
For example, look at verse 13 with me real quick. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Right there he's saying we have confidence. If we believe in the Son of God, that is Jesus, then we have confidence that we have eternal life. And in the very next verse, he says, this is a confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. In this, we see the purpose of prayer and the secret power of prayer. It is to ask. We can ask anything as long as it's according to his will. And once we have done that, then we have confidence. We are assured that God hears us. First thing we need to understand that God wants us to ask in prayer. Much prayer fails because we never ask for anything. God is a loving God, and he's a generous giver. He gives us all our gifts, and he wants us to ask him according to his will. Some people say, I don't know how to pray, but you let them get in a situation where there's nothing else to do? I mean, think about it. Who listening to me, including myself, at one time or another said, well, There's nothing else to do. Things are so bad, I have nothing else to do but pray. But see, that's not the real attitude that John's trying to teach us here. He's teaching us to ask, not as the final and last resort, but our first person we turn to. He wants us to have that relationship. What's John's reaction to prayer? It's that we have confidence in this, that when we ask him, he hears us as long as according to his will. What I want you to understand today, prayer is not some experiment. Prayer is a certainty. And John teaches us that. It's a sure thing. He knows it works, and he's trying to teach us that it works. We have a confidence that is expressed to Jesus. We come before him in that boldness. If you study the New Testament, you realize God delights in bold praying. He also delights in bold people. The writer of Hebrews says this several times. First, he says in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin, let us therefore, what, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to him in a time of need. And then in Hebrews 10, 19, he says, We have the boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the new and living way. This is the way we need to think. This is the way we need to characterize our prayer. It should be bold, confident, and certain. And we can do that because we understand in this verse, verse 14 and verse 15, there are two principles that we are told here. First, that we are heard, and then we have the certainty of having. I want to make sure you guys understand I'm not a name it and claim it person because I've told you several times and I want you to stop and hear this right now. We have the certainty that he hears us and we have the certainty that we have it when we pray according to God's will. But unfortunately, many of us pray trying to get God to do our will and therefore that prayer is never heard. Too many of us think that God is like the Aladdin's lamp. We just rub it in the right way, and the genie of heaven appears, and he gives us our request. God becomes some heavenly bellboy rushing to our aid when we push some special button. But this is not the concept that we are being taught. I'll be the first to tell you there are sadly 
pastors and preachers that are on national TV and radio that take this and twist it a different way. They demand that God do things, making him a junior partner in their business relationship. And that's not what prayer is. And that is not what God promises us. That's not what we see here. It is not a name it and claim it type situation. What it says here that we have confidence, one, to go before God, two, to pray to God. And if we pray according to his will, he hears us. And as I teach you on prayer today, I want you to walk away understanding that prayer is a means of obtaining God's will. And two, it is limited always by the will and purpose of God. Sometimes our prayers are not according to the will of God because our motives are wrong. If you look at James 4, 3, what does he say? You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own passions. We ask out of our passions, out of our fleshly desires, instead of God's will. Listen to what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I think I've beaten this to death, but our prayers must be according to God's will. And I want you to hear that loud and clear. But hopefully this verse gives you confidence in your prayer. That your prayers are not empty. They're not meaningless words. Your prayers are not mere formality. Your prayers are not only heard by the walls. Your prayers are heard by God when we pray according to his will. God listens to us when we talk to him. If we have the confidence that God hears us, then verse 15 carries on. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And this brings us to the second certainty that we have in prayer, and that is the certainty of having. Now, this one should get you excited. Think about what he just said. If we know it is according to his will, then we know it is heard. And if we know it's heard, we know that we have it. God has already granted the request. In other words, God never says no, except to that which lies outside his will. Listen to what Paul was inspired to tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. There are no negatives. It's all yes and amen. Is that a wonderful thing? Are you excited about that like I am? Do you really believe that? No good thing will be withheld from him who walks uprightly. That's what Psalms 84.11 says. I remember when I was on staff at Grace Haven, I had people that would come up to me and say, Pastor Tim, will you pray for us? And what I want you to also understand is that God has no favorites, no special pets. He has intimates. Anyone can be one of his intimates. We just have to have that desire to be intimate with him, to move along with his program as he's outlined, praying for his will as Jesus did. See, that intimate relationship is what he wants from us. And that's how we understand the will of God. And that's how we pray the will of God is being intimate and reading his word and understanding what he wants from us. I know some of you are probably saying, well, Tim, I disagree with that because I see God play favorites. I see him give others more than he gives when I ask. I see him do things and he doesn't answer my prayer. And I want you to understand what I'm trying to teach you today is that we have to pray according to his will and he hears that prayer. And then John says, if he hears that prayer, we already have it. 
And part of that verse that we saw in verse 15, he says, is that we have the confidence that we have it. Sometimes we don't believe what we pray and ask for. And I can hear some of you now. Well, Tim, I prayed according to God's will, and I had the faith that we have it. Well, there's one other piece we need to understand. It's not some gimmick. It is that we also have to understand that God's timing doesn't always match up with our timing. But under God's timing, the answer, we have it. We we can walk in that assurance. We can walk assured that God heard us because we have prayed according to his will. And because he heard us, we have it. But it also is going to be answered on God's timing, not our timing. Again, if we're not careful to understand that part of it, then we put God in the wrong position. See, it's up to God when that answer will come, not us. The request has been granted. That's the confidence that we have. And we can give thanks for that. We can take from our prayer that was according to his will, and we can thank him that he's going to answer that prayer, that he's already answered it in his time. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples right before he went back into heaven? Acts 1-7, he says, It is not for you to know the time or the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. We have the certainty of prayer that if we pray according to his will, he hears us and we have it. And it will be answered upon God's timing, whatever that is. And what Acts teaches us is that is reserved for him himself. Jesus made it clear that God is not some reluctant neighbor who needs to be wheeled and coerced and enticed to give us something. He gives us eagerly, gladly, willingly. Jesus said, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find it. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Matthew 7, 7. Sadly, many prayers are people praying like they have to twist God's arm. But that's not a biblical prayer. God is never like that. What did Jesus say? What father of you, if your son comes and asks for a fish, will give you a serpent? If he comes and asks for bread, will he give him a stone? See, God wouldn't do that. See, Jesus goes on to say, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father respond to your need in prayer? And that is the true basis of all prayer. And then John gives us an illustration in verse 16 and 17. And like last week, there is some controversy, so I'm going to go over some of that with you. I'll tell you what I believe, but there's multiple beliefs on these verses from commentators. Look at verse 16 and 17 with me real quick. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sin that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Well, that was crystal clear, I'm sure. Here, John is saying, if we see a brother in sin, John tells us the first thing we should do is what? We should pray for that person. Too often, prayer is the last thing we do. It's the smallest thing we do in in regards to seeing a brother or sister that is having a difficult time and that is in sin. But John goes on to say that we are promised from God that he will bless that prayer made on behalf of the brother or sister in sin. But that leads up to the part that is there a little bit of controversy around. That is sin leading to death. 
What is sins lead to death? Well, there are really three major explanations that answer what is this sin unto death. And you have to kind of pick which one you believe based on your scripture and your studying God's word. The first view regards it as some specific sin which is so terrible that it is unforgivable. Some say that would be suicide or murder or idolatry or even adultery. This view, which has been held all throughout time by Christians, gave rise early in the Catholic Church. If you go look at the Greek right here, it makes it clear that this is simply sin in general. It's not sin which causes death, which would be suicide, murder, that kind of thing. But it's simply sin which is unto death. Any specific sin can become sin unto death. Therefore, I don't think it's a specific kind of sin that's in this view. This interpretation, to me, just doesn't really stand, but it is a Catholic-based view. Now, there's a second one, and this is even more widely held, that it concerned what Jesus talked about, blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Remember that on one occasion, he warned the Pharisees that they should be careful a blaspheming against the Holy Spirit because it can never be forgiven. What Jesus is talking here is about an apostate, and that is someone who's made a profession of faith for Christ but begins to drift away or ultimately comes to a place where he actually blasphemes the name of the Lord and not only the name of the Lord but the things of the Christian faith, denying them and turning his back on them and going into complete apostate state. Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 and other passages make clear that such an apostate is a terrible situation. He's committed blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, the flagrant rejection of the testimony of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And that is unpardonable. And, and that's what Jesus is getting at. But remember, John is writing to Christians. So I don't know that this fits here, even though that is a view to have and to understand this never happens to a committed, born-again Christian. It's only committed by those who made a profession of faith, but never entered into the new birth of Jesus Christ. But I want to go back to what it says. If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a sin unto death, and that word brother there, if you go look at it, could be brother and sister, but they use brother back in, in the translation, is reserved for Christians. So that apostate would be someone that was not born again. This is talking about a brother or someone that is born again that is in sin. If you go back to the very beginning of this chapter, chapter 5, and you look at verse 1, John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves the child. And so that is someone that is my brother. He is like me. He's a member of the family of God. He is a saved, he's a Christian, he's born again. And so what I believe is when he says sin unto death here, this is limited to Christians and not apostates. This takes us to the third and final view that I feel, uh, based on my research, is the best answer to what is sin unto death. Let's read it this way. If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a sin unto physical death, he will ask and God will give him life for those whose sin is not unto physical death. 
There is sin which is unto physical death. There is sin which a Christian commits which will result in God taking him home in physical death. So as I research this, there are examples in the Bible of sin unto death. All wrongdoing is sin. All unrighteousness, all things against God is sin. So let's not misunderstand that. But there is sin which has a certain element about it that the characteristics of it will result in physical death, physical judgment. So let's look at some instances of this in Scripture. First, Moses, for example, committed sin unto death when he was commanded to speak to the rock in the wilderness. Water was to come forth after he spoke to it. But before, he had been commanded to strike the rock, and the water would come out. And when the water did come out, it was good for them to drink. But in Numbers 28, he is told to speak to the rock, not to strike it. But what does he do? He strikes the rock. Anyhow, later on, they come to the border of the land and God says to Moses, you're not allowed to go in. Speak no more to me about this matter. Do not pray about this. Joshua will lead them in. We do see in Deuteronomies that God tells him, hey, I will let you go up on a mountain. I'll let you see the land. But that's as far as you can go. Don't pray about this to me anymore. Don't speak to me anymore about this. Just as what John has said right here. Another place in the book of Joshua, you find Achan commits a sin unto death. They're told on how when they go and take Jericho that they're not to take anything. The possessions of the inhabitants are there are, are cursed by God and not to take them. But Achan does. He takes gold and he buries it beneath his tent. Well, after Jericho, they go into another battle, and Israel loses that battle. They're destroyed. They're defeated. God speaks to them to go and search the camp. And they find Achan, that he and his family was commanded by God to be put to death. So this was sin unto death, that he disobeyed God and he kept what was cursed. You may go, Tim, that's Old Testament. Well, let me give you a New Testament example also. In the fifth chapter of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira pretended to have devotion to the church and that they sold this land and they gave everything, wanting everyone to see a reputation in the eyes of Christians, but they were lying to the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they were immediately put to death by God. They committed sin unto death. In 1 Corinthians, Paul told the Corinthians that some of them were getting drunk. They were being selfish. They were pushing their way in and eating before others, showing no concern for others. And above all, not discerning the meaning of the table or the Lord's body. And for this, they were weak and sickly, and many of them slept. This was Paul explaining to them that some of them had committed sin unto death. What you should see is not all these sins were the same other than they were sins against God that resulted in judgment of physical death. Well, that probably makes you ask the second question. Then what then turns ordinary sin into this kind of sin? And my answer to you is it is a willful presumption to presume something when you know God has said it's wrong and yet you go ahead and sin. You go ahead and choose to sin over what you know is wrong. And that is a sin unto death, and that is a result in physical judgment. Now, this doesn't always come suddenly. It did with Ananias and Sapphira. It did with Achan, but it didn't with Moses. 
It didn't with the Corinthians. So let's look back to this verse now. If you see a brother committing a sin which is not unto death, and that sin, to me, would arise largely out of ignorance, sin where somebody is simply doing something which they may have a vague idea is wrong, they have no understanding of the consequences and no awareness of how bad that sin is and what the result might be. This is the kind of sin that older people often see manifested in younger Christians. Young Christians often stumble into things that they're not aware of. They don't understand what they're about to get into. They don't realize the danger that they're treading on. And what he says is that if you see this kind of sin, your brother committing this kind of sin, ask God and God will give life to those whose sin is not unto death. God will withhold the judgment of physical weakness and grant opportunity for the renewal of that life. One of the commentators, Dr. Ironside, used to illustrate this, and he said that sometimes you see children playing outside, and their quarreling breaks out while they're playing, and one of the mothers sees it, and she says, if you don't behave yourself, you will have to come in the house. You're going to have to stop playing. And the child responds back to that mother and says, don't worry, mom, I'll be good, I promise. But just in a little bit, they start quarreling again. They start fighting with this other person. And so the mother then says, okay, that's enough. That's enough. I told you. Now you got to come in. Now you've got to leave. You can't play anymore. I can't trust you outside playing with this person anymore. And then the child begs the mother, let me stay and play a little more. Oh, mom, I promise I'll be good. I'm good. I will. But she says, no, I gave you a chance. Now come on inside. I can't trust you out there anymore. And this is what God sometimes says to us. Do we realize that God's whole reputation is at stake in our behavior? Everything we do and say is reflecting the character of the being of God to the world around us. We are disgracing his name. We are disgracing the word Christian in the eyes of others. Just the way Moses did. Just the way that the Corinthians did, just the way that Ananiah and Sapphira did. I'm out of time, so let me close with this real quick. So this is prayer. We have power in prayer. If we see a brother committing a sin which is not unto death, out of ignorance, confusion, weakness, then let us pray for him. God will give him life and straighten out this difficulty. But first, we need to understand that God hears our prayers when we pray according to his will, and he answers that. He gives us the certainty of hearing our prayer and also answering our prayer when we pray according to his will. So the question today for you, do you know how to pray? Do you know how to pray according to his will? Are you trying to teach God to be like a genie and you're rubbing it and asking for something? There's nothing wrong for asking. But we have to ask according to his will. Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord. We thank you for our time together. Lord, I thank you that you provided a, a way for us to understand this power of prayer. Lord, that you've given us an opportunity to have an intimate relationship with you. Lord, that you want that. You want to walk and you want to show us. When we dig in your word, when we pray with you, you want to show us that we have a way to pray according to your will. And Lord, that you want to give us all the things that we need in this life. We need to ask. We need to communicate with you. Father, we thank you for the instruction of your word. 
Lord, give us the faith that we'll be obedient to it. We'll obey it not only in praying for others, but but also we'll use it to avoid openly and willingly disobeying this word that you've given us. Lord, for the one that showed up today, maybe they didn't understand the power of prayer. Maybe they've been praying wrong. Lord, I pray today that this word will fall on fertile soil, Lord, that it'll, it'll break up fallow ground and it'll go deep and take root and they'll understand. For the one that doesn't have the intimate relationship with you, I'm not saying they're not a brother and sister in Christ, but maybe they have stepped away from reading your word and praying. Lord, I pray today, Lord, that they will get back into your word. Lord, they'll start building that intimate relationship with you. And Lord, for the one that doesn't know you at all, I pray for them today. Lord, that they would ask you to be Lord of their life. They will admit they're a sinner. They'll believe on your finished work on the cross and you overcoming death. And Lord, they will commit to following you. Lord, they'll chase after you and they'll follow after your word. Lord, it's in your name we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.